Hi, welcome to episode 57 of the American Tributaries podcast, where to break out of the bubbles we've all been living in, we're using modern technology to explore the various currents of people in our great country, kind of like a 21st century Lewis and Clark journey. I'm your host, Michael Whitten, here in Brooklyn, New York, and thank you for joining me in this exploration of America. Today, I'm so very delighted to be joined by Jessica Walton. Jessica currently lives in Maryland and for many years lived over in Israel. She has a fascinating expertise in the confluence of communications, the defense industry, and mental health. Um, and we were connected by mutual friend Nick Adams, who was a guest of the podcast in episode 25. So Jessica, thanks so much for joining me today. How are you doing? And could you share a bit of your story? Sure, sure. Well, Michael, after speaking to you on the phone, it's it's kind of fun to finally uh, see you in person or at least digitally. And um, we have this saying in, in Jewish ethics that um, who is wise? Somebody who learns from everyone. So basically, you know, you're a wise guy. <laughs> and I think it's great. I mean, I think what you're doing is great. I think, um, you know, giving people the platform to tell their stories and, um, you know, this appreciation of the great diversity we have in the U.S. Um, I, I really like what you're doing. So, you know, thank you for inviting me onto your show. Wow. So what's my story? Like, where am I supposed <laughs> to start with that? You know, I was in utero. <laughs> well, um, you know, I first, when I first started doing the podcast, I would kind of yeah. lead people in a certain direction, but I'm like, you know, but it's their story and I yeah. want this to be kind of an open-ended discussion. I'm sure we'll settle in on things, but totally. it's open-ended on purpose. On purpose. Yeah, sure, sure. So, <laughs> Yeah, I'll tell you a bit um, about my story. And I, I can't really tell you my story without telling you also my family story. Um, so I um, grew up in Kensington, Maryland, at least until the age of 10. Um, uh, I was born into a Jewish family, but a family that was really unaffiliated, really unaware of their Jewish roots. And so my family story is, is kind of typical, actually, of a lot of American Jews. Um, Based my great grandparents uh, came from the shtetls in Eastern Europe, think like fiddler on the roof style, you know, and um, they were religious, like practicing Jews, like, you know, most Jews were at the time. Um, so they came, they came to America and they were very poor immigrants. <clears throat> and so within, you know, a generation, they started to lose their Judaism or their practice because they were poor. They had to work on Saturday on the Jewish Sabbath. Um, they couldn't necessarily afford, you know, a nice Jewish education for their kids. So, so very quickly, um, again, like most American Jews who are originally, you know, from Europe, were coming over here and kind of quickly losing their roots, quickly assimilating. And so, my parents, you know, um, they they're both New Yorkers, and they, you know, didn't know that much about their roots. Um, they weren't even you know, committed to marrying Jewish. It's kind of an accident that they even met each other. Um, they met at a movie theater in New York. Um, the buses were, were closed down because there was a snowstorm and they were, you know, looking, my mom was looking for a ride, you know, and my dad was there with a group of people and um, she just got into his car. That was a different day and age, right? Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> she needed wow. a ride, you know, and they started talking and my my dad has like these big green eyes and dark hair. My mom thought he was Irish Catholic. It turns out he's he's a Brooklyn Jew. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess, you know, the rest is history, right? So my parents, um, you know, got married and uh, I was born in New York on the Upper West Side. And um, my father who's a scientist, got a job with the, the U.S. government when I was a baby. So thank God I don't have that New York accent. <laughs> <laughs> so we moved down um, to Kensington, which is very close to the border with Washington, D.C. 
um, it's funny because I usually when I'm, I'm, I lived abroad for over a decade, right, my adult life. So when people would ask where I, I came from, I was always like, I'm from the Washington, D.C. area, <laughs> because most people hadn't heard of Maryland, you know, at least people that I came into contact with, you know, internationally. So, yeah. <laughs> um, but anyhow, so I'm, I'm growing up in, in Kensington, which is like this very nice kind of old town neighborhood. Um, at least when I was there, it was predominantly Mormon. So my, my best friend was Mormon. And I'm not kidding. One day I walk into her house and there's this big picture of Jesus on her living room wall. And I was like, you know, Jesus looks like my dad <laughs> because like my dad, my parents were hippies, you know, and, um, my dad had like long flowing hair and that, you know, that flowing shirt. And like, he just really looked like Jesus. And my friend was like, you know, well, that, that makes sense because Jesus was a Jew. And I was like, what? Like, I didn't know anything. And, um, she said, well, look, if you want to learn more about the Jews, like she said to me, well, you know, they're really special people. Like you guys are like an ancient people. You come from Israel. And I was like, no, no, that's not true. We come from New York. <laughs> I just, I thought all the Jews in the world came from New York as a kid. And, Isn't so, the largest and, population of Jewish people in New York or something? It's not in Israel? Or? I think so. I, I think it might be almost equal. Yeah, I don't know the exact numbers, but um, yes, there is a significant population of Jews in New York. So you can understand as a little kid who doesn't know too much, right? Um, you know how, how I could um, misunderstand that. So any of my friends says to me, look, she gives me a Bible and she says, why don't you come to church with me? She said, you can learn about the Jews. You can learn about Jesus at church. And like, I mean, I didn't have anything. I was actually kind of jealous of my friends. You know, they went to church. They had their roots. They had their traditions. They had customs. They had holidays. They had their community and they were learning all the time. And like, I didn't have any of that. Now, what I didn't know, what I found out years later is that my parents were actually feeling the same lack and they were exploring different, you know, sects of, or denominations of Judaism on the side. But I, I didn't really know that as a kid. I just kind of felt rootless, even though otherwise I had a really wonderful childhood. So uh, my friend gives me the Bible. She says, go home, you know, tell your parents they can come too to church. And I was like, okay, cool. And there's free donuts at church. So, <laughs> um, and I remember this like really vividly that I, I came, you know, to, um, to my, my house and my dad was mowing the lawn and, <laughs> And I told him, you know, I said, I have this Bible and I'm going to church. And um, my parents unexpectedly had a really strong reaction. They're like, you are not going to church. You're a Jew. And I'm like, well, what does that even mean? And they said, go back to your friend, give her back the Bible. Like church is not an appropriate place for you. You're a Jew. So what does that mean? I was like nine years old. Um, so that basically um, initiated a series of <laughs> events. <laughs> um, I can thank the Mormons for that. Um, where my parents really started getting more involved in Judaism and what they wound up, what really spoke to them was Orthodox Judaism. And I can tell you in a moment a little bit about the difference between Orthodox Judaism versus the other um, denominations. But in a nutshell, um, my by the time I was 10 years old, um, my parents took my brother and I out of Kensington um, about a half hour away to Potomac, where there is an Orthodox Jewish community. Um, we were enrolled in yeshiva in like a full, like full, there was the, like, the, can you imagine the culture shock? I went from like being in public school yeah. um, to suddenly being in like the shtetl. <laughs> um, yeah. And so it was, it was a huge culture shock, um, but I didn't rebel. I didn't try to run away from it because I was like, I'm going to stick this through because like, I really want to know where I came from. I want to be connected to something 
bigger than myself. Um, community is important to me. So, you know, I was willing to go through that initial discomfort of, of having a culture shock and my life, as it turns out, I've had many culture shocks because I've lived abroad, you know, I say that was the first big one. Um, but yeah, I was uh, actually, I'm, I'm very grateful that my parents did that. I think there's an important lesson here, you know, about education, um, about education um, as a way of continuing the line of a certain value system, because that's what Judaism is to me. Um, of course, any religion has many ways of speaking to different people. Maybe you're somebody who likes the prayer service, you like the communities, you know, involvement, uh, you like learning, you like the ethics, there's different ways for any religion that you could relate. But for me, like the value system um, is, is really important. And um, if you don't know where you come from, if you don't know what your value system is, and why it's important, it's very easy to assimilate and very quickly, you know, lose touch with those roots. Yeah, you know, it, it's interesting, because and when you're talking about it, I, I like, like for me, I'm, I guess I, I would say I'm agnostic on religion. I mean, I haven't really gone to church in, in decades. Um, mm -hmm. But, um, and in some respects, it seems that <clears throat> there is, I can appreciate all the, the, the upside of being, I guess, more kind of uh, involved and within the community and a certain like kind of value system. But like, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like, Maybe it's just human nature, but there seems to be like a good side to thing, something like that. But there can also be like a bad side. Like if you are so caught up in that one system that you can't relate to other <clears throat> systems, is that, right. I mean, is that incorrect? And, and like, how have you kind of dealt with, I guess, maybe having more of that, like that balance between being within your community and devoted to it, but being mm -hmm. able, as you certainly, it sounds, it seems you've been able to kind of engage in so many of, with so many other communities outside of what you've like kind of dedicated your spiritual life to. Yeah, sure. Um, well, there is this concept in, in Judaism that the Torah, which is um, the, the root of the word in Hebrew, hora'ah, means guidance. The Torah is something that was given, you know, especially to the Jews. Um, on the other hand, wisdom was given to all of mankind. So as an Orthodox Jew, there isn't really like a conflict for me to take wisdom both from the Torah from my own roots and traditions, and also to take wisdom from the rest of the world to also be well read, you know, in literature and the sciences. And, you know, it really like I'm, I'm a very multidisciplinary person, it really informs, you know, my, my writing. Um, so I don't have any, you know, particular conflict with with being um, part of both worlds. Um, and, you know, since I came back from Israel to the US about five, maybe six years ago, <laughs> um, you know, I've also made friends, um, not just within the Jewish community, but I have friends from all different backgrounds. And, uh, you know, and I, I learn from them and their stories as well. Okay. And then how did you, I mean, I guess we can, maybe I guess we're fast forwarding <laughs> it, but um, I guess, can you take us into where you are now as far as in the de defense world? And I guess, well, first, let's go mm -hmm. back. How is it living in Israel? Oh, <laughs> that's a loaded question. <laughs> yeah. Because um, you, yeah. I, sorry, because you were you were ten, you are now at Yeshiva and Potomac. Um, I guess we'll continue the story, really. Please. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> sorry. Um, yeah, and I like these little tangents. Um, so yeah, so from age ten, um, you know, and um, as a teenager, so I was in Yeshiva. I was also in um. A Hebrew Academy, which is like a modern Orthodox state school. I won't go into all the different, like the modern Orthodox, the ultra Orthodox, but I've basically been mixed in, in all those worlds. 
Um, and, and when I was a teenager, I wanted to immigrate to Israel. Um, and I came from a very Zionist background, like a very pro-Israel school. Um, at the time, I was actually the only one in my class to immigrate, and there's a reason for that. It was during the Second Intifada, which was a very violent conflict between the Israelis and Palestinians. There were suicide bombings. There, there was just a lot of really awful stuff going on in the country. And um, I was actually very affected by the Second Intifada. It broke out while I was in high school. And um, I, I knew that I wanted my early interest in, in working security is actually with the police. I did an internship with the Montgomery County Police, um, and I thought I was going to stay in America, and that was fine with me. And then the Intifada broke out, and suddenly I'm reading the news. I'm reading about these Israelis who are being killed every day, and all of a sudden I'm like, "Wait a second, that those are like my my cousins, you know? And those are people I'm never going to meet." And it, it had a really deep effect on me. And at the same time, we had some Israeli um, students who had just completed their military service and were spending a year or so in our school teaching uh, Judaics. And, and these guys were like, Jessica, why you stay in America? Why you work for the police here? Work for the police in Israel. You know, like you're a small person in America. You're nobody. Go like, we need you in Israel. I'm like, okay. <laughs> They're very funny, very charismatic guys. So those things kind of came together. And I just decided I want to I want to go to Israel. I want to see how that goes. I have zero adult life experience. Uh, my Hebrew was like, eh. <laughs> you know, I spoke more biblical Hebrew than modern Hebrew. But I was like, all right, you got to start somewhere. And yeah, so that was it at the end of high school, like right after I finished my internship with uh, the police forces, I was like, all right, I'm, I'm getting on that plane and I'm, I'm going to go to Israel and become a citizen. And then, and then, so how we, we, did your parents stay behind? Were you going there by yourself? Just me. It was just me. <clears throat> wow. Yeah. And did you have a place to stay or what was set up? What was waiting for you in Israel? Yeah, I was initially uh, in the dorms. Um, I okay. enrolled at the criminology uh, department at Bari Lawn University, which is um, right outside Tel Aviv in the suburbs. So yeah, I started off as a criminology student. I was in the dorms. Um, I didn't jive really well with all the rules of the dorms, so very quickly I moved out to an apartment. <laughs> um, but anyhow, um, yeah, I, I was a criminology major, so I thought like things are set for me. And this is kind of a theme in my life where I, I thought like my path is set, I know where I'm going, and then suddenly everything changes. So um, I failed out of the criminology program because my Hebrew wasn't good enough. Like I was taking multiple choice exams in Hebrew. I went from like a six week summer program of intensive Hebrew to like jumping into the university, which was stupid. I mean, I should have, you know, been more patient, spent a whole year learning the language. But anyhow, I jumped in. Um, I failed all my courses. And then I had to make a choice. Like, do I go back to America and study criminology or do I stick it out in Israel and just find something else to study? So in my classic impulsive teenage days, I said to, you know, the university administration, what can I study in English? They said, well, we got English literature and we have a business program. And I'm thinking like, well, I'm not really good at math. So I don't want to do the business program. I was like, all right, let's do English literature. Seriously. And I made it sound to my parents like, oh, yeah, I really thought this out, you know, but like, no, I just wanted to stay in Israel. I was like, I just want to get a degree. And it set me on this whole other path. Um, it turned out to be an amazing program, amazing program at Bar-Ilan. Um, and that was my first step into the storytelling world. Um, it just like it's amazing like how things have come together for me today that I have, you know, I can mix my my storytelling and my English literature background. It gave me an appreciation for story. Um and uh when I was 19, I was told like, hey, do you want to like join this direct PhD program and become a professor here? And so again, 
I thought my, my path was set. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's already happened like three or four times. So <laughs> can't wait to see what happens next. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, um, so I thought my path was set. Uh, so, you know, I've, I've told you basically I was this clueless immigrant, um, you know, I had no adult life experience. Things were, were very hard for me. Um, even though it was a path that I chose. So like no self-pity, but it was hard. And, um, so when I was in this apartment building, um, in Givat Shmuel, which was like the little like town right where, um, or the neighborhood right next to the university, um, I bumped into this guy in the elevator. His name was Roman. Um, so he was about like four years older than me. He's an immigrant from, from Russia, from Siberia. So he came when he was younger to Israel. He's 13. Very interesting guy. Um, he had previously been involved in, in, in local criminal organizations, but then he, let's just say, cleaned up his act. <laughs> And um, when I met him, he was serving in an elite commando unit in the um, Israeli military or IDF. And he really took me under his wing as an older brother, like protected me from, you know, landlords and <laughs> stopped me from making all kinds of, you know, mistakes as, as an immigrant. He really like looked out for me. And as a result, I was hanging out with him and his crowd, um, his crowd of um, interesting, uh, involved security professionals and that was when I started to kind of get back in touch with the those roots in criminology, right, or in the police. But it was suddenly bigger than than just law enforcement. I was interested in national security. I came to Israel during a war. Um, like a year or two later, there was a territorial pull pull out from the Gaza Strip. That was a huge issue, like that had major implications for Israeli national security. And then right after that, you had we had the second uh, Lebanon war, and mm. um, so you, you can't not be aware of the national security situation when you live in Israel. And so there you go. That was also the beginning of a transition to, you know, another path of, you know, my, my interest in working in the security field. That was at least uh, the seeds were planted then. Mm -hmm. And did you, so there is um, compulsory service in Israel, right? Yes. Did that, did that also affect, like, did that, uh, did that also uh, affect you? So not at the time when I immigrated as a teenager, um, I was actually exempt from compulsory or mandatory service uh, for two reasons. Um, one was I was um, an immigrant without any family in the country, which would make me, quote, a lone soldier. Um, and the second thing was I came from a, a religious family. And it's a whole complicated political thing between like the rabbis and and the Israeli military, but basically like Orthodox Jewish women are not required to serve, you know, they're encouraged to do um, volunteer service. Um, so I was actually exempt at the time from the military. I only served in the military later on for different reasons. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then, um, and were you, I mean, I guess during all that, that conflict, like, were you in danger like i mean either like immediately i mean did you encounter really bad situations or was it just kind of always on the periphery what was that like yeah i mean i had some close calls i'm very lucky i was never involved directly in a suicide bombing um but on two occasions i was like at a bus stop and about 10 15 minutes after i left there was a bombing there um wow. so i've definitely had close calls um i also i had a boyfriend um who was originally from France. So he was an immigrant like me and um, he almost died in a suicide bombing. He lost hearing in, in one ear. So um, yeah. So like I said, I'm lucky that I was never involved in, in a shooting or suicide bombing, but it was definitely all around us. And it was, 
it was scary. You always felt it in the air. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I I guess for a frame of reference, only to say I can't imagine what you'd be going to do. But I remember just like the I, I was in New York City um, in at, for nine eleven, and you know I, I wasn't even like in I wasn't even there at the World Trade Center, and I, you know for for months afterwards, it was like you always felt I always felt on edge, and that was just from like one yeah. incident. I mean, it was a huge incident, but it was just that one incident. So I can't imagine like how man I can almost I don't know if this connects to your focus then on mental health but i mean as a civilian you're basically <clears throat> constantly living with the threat of war which i think is almost probably as bad in some respects mentally as being in it because you don't know when it's going to happen um is, you is don't know that, when it's going to end you also right. just don't know when it's going to end and it's like okay you know it's it's not like a war also only happens during daytime it happens at night it disturbs your sleep you're running to bomb shelters and then you know Israel's a small country, so you have your friends who are, you know, in the reserves, they're going down, uh, you know, to fight wherever or up wherever they have to fight. And, um, and it's very stressful, like waiting to hear news. Is your friend coming back alive? For sure. Um, but I don't, I also don't want to accidentally portray Israel as this like constantly war torn country in between these conflicts. And yes, unfortunately, they happen fairly frequently, like every four to five years. But in between, Israel is like a very, normal and, and vibrant country and you can live a very good life a very normal life i guess that's all relative right yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it, it's definitely a quirky country but you know there's a lot going on in israel beyond you know just the wars that we experience okay and then you said you did end up serving in the in the military somehow yes and believe me it was not easy to get in <laughs> so it was like yeah um Right. So I have to go back a little bit to tell you like how I was even getting involved in the security field um, to tell you why I wanted to go to the military, why it was actually very important to me and why I actually fought um, to do my military service uh, at the age of 28, which is like, a re yeah, a record, you know, like like it's very unusual, especially for for a woman, a religious woman to be serving in the IDF at 28. But anyhow, um, so going back to this story um, with my my friend Roman. Um, and and I discuss, you know, his his story as well as part of my story in, in, in my memoir. Um, so basically, uh, he he wanted to go to the upper echelons of the security field. He was really interested in getting accepted into the Mossad, which is Israel's premier intelligence agency, which is similar to the American CIA. And um, I don't I mean, I'm getting some of this secondhand, um, you know, from his cousin, but um basically what happened somewhere in the process, and I don't know exactly where he was in the process with the intelligence community, but it was discovered that he was suffering from bipolar disorder. Uh, so he was discharged. Um, and as a result, he committed suicide. Oh my and God, I'm so sorry. Thank you. I know it's had a, a huge impact on me. Um, and basically, a, about a, let's say a year and a half, two years before this happened, I had been diagnosed with bipolar disorder in Israel. And so I just had like this bomb fall on my head. And, you know, suddenly it wasn't enough for me to be an English lit professor. It wasn't enough for me to serve in law enforcement. It was like I'm going back to the security field and I, and I want to get accepted into the, the best of the best. You know, that became this driving force. And, you know, I've had people like I just recently started coming out with this story. Um, 
And I've had people, of course, you know, criticize me for that, for hiding, you know, a, a major um, mental health issue from the security community. And like my response to that is like, yeah, I, I get that. Like I made decisions in my 20s that I wouldn't necessarily make now <laughs> in my 30s. Um, it's a complicated issue, right? It's a very complicated issue. Um, but either way, I just was very driven now um, to make a contribution um, at the highest levels in this world. Nothing less was going to satisfy me. And uh, I went back to the U.S. Um, I enrolled in a master's program in security intelligence. And um, I returned to Israel after about two years in this program. I continued my studies at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem in their political violence and terrorism department. And then, you know, at age 25, 26, I had to figure out how am I getting my foot in the door in one of like the most secretive, closed off societies in, in Israel as an immigrant. <laughs> Not only that, but as an immigrant coming from a community in Maryland where you know, I most, not most, but many members of my Jewish community work for the U.S. government. So you can imagine this is like a complicated situation and I'm kind of putting my eggs in one basket. But, you know, I was determined um, to achieve what I wanted to achieve. And um, yeah, and I uh, was basically <laughs> trying, it was almost like a scattershot approach. I, I was you know, trying to get my foot in the door in all these different places, trying to build my way up, you know, to the upper echelons of the intelligence community. Networking is very important. Who you know in Israel, we call protexia. You know, it's almost like a currency, who you know. I had to build that up. Um, but what I, I discovered, I had a lot of doors being shut in my face because they're like, you didn't do the military service. And it's like in Israel, it's like also an important like part of being part of the nation, of being part of the culture. Like, so the fact that I didn't do the military service was like, you know, who the hell are you? Why should we take you seriously? So, you know, the Israeli military is like the great equalizer because everybody goes or most people do. There are exceptions, of course. Um, <clears throat> and then when I approached the IDF, I was 26 and they're like, you're too old. Go away. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I'm not going away, you know, <laughs> like too bad. Um, so, yeah, I just um, I basically like harassed the IDF along with my network of people who got behind me and also, you know, made connections for me on the inside. And so at age 28, um, I went to the IDF. I did my basic training with 18 year olds, which was hysterical. Wow. So I have a whole whole chapter <laughs> in my book dedicated that to that. And my nickname in these in, in uh, basic training was America. I was the only American soldier <laughs> <laughs> in this particular training camp. And um, yeah, so so that's how I wound up um, doing. I know, wasn't that like quite a tangent? I just like took you all yeah. the way around. But that's how I wound up doing um, my Israeli military service at mm. the age of 28. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it, it's interesting because like and on the one hand, like you, I mean, you grew up in America and identified with, is, with Israel, but now you're in Israel and then you get identified with America. That's so true. It's so funny you say that because other American Jews who I've met in Israel have said that. They're like, yeah, in America, you're a Jew, but in Israel, you're an American. <laughs> right. No, yeah. it's it's really it's really interesting. And I guess it's like, you know, I mean, and you I mean, you wouldn't be the only person who feels that way. Like you hear about that from anybody whose families immigrated from other countries or other areas sure. when they go back and they're just like, no, you're not you're not Chinese or you're not, you know, Kenyan. You're you're American. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's it's very interesting. It's just interesting to see yourself 
um, in, in different contexts because suddenly you see yourself, you know, very different. Um, I can tell you, for example, something cultural about Israelis is that they tend to be what we call dugri, like direct. You know, they don't sugarcoat things. Um, and so people either love that or hate that about Israeli culture. Um, I think maybe it's a New Yorker. You'd probably appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> it's not unfamiliar. <laughs> and, um, you know, so I always thought that I was kind of like growing up in the U.S., like, oh, man, I'm, I'm you know, kind of direct or whatever. And then I come to Israel and I just feel like like kind of muted, like, you know, like, wow, I'm really, I'm really diplomatic compared to the people here, you know? <laughs> um, so, so yeah, it's very interesting to see, to see yourself in, in these different, um, these different uh, environments or, or contexts. Yeah. So, so then in your service, what did, what was your assignment? Oh man, see, that's also like a loaded, <laughs> a loaded question. <laughs> Because what, where I was supposed to go is not where I actually went. And there's a whole story behind that, which I can't really tell you without like giving away some key points in, in the memoir. Okay. Yeah. Um, but I, I can tell you that basically I, I was supposed to become an intelligence officer. Um, and I went through some pretty crazy tests and interrogations to obtain um, a, a top secret clearance. Um, and so at the end of, of base, and I, I just really, I went through hell like to, to get to where I wanted to go. Um, and then at the, the my last um, night of basic training in the desert, um, I got a phone call, a mysterious phone call uh, from headquarters telling me, don't show up to work tomorrow. Don't contact the Israeli intelligence community again. Like, you, like we, we don't want to deal with you. Like, keep your distance from us. And I was like, whoa, what the hell? Like, what's going on? I found out later what happened. It was a huge misunderstanding. Again, you'll wow. find out if you read the okay. book. But yeah, um, yeah so... Um, basically I, they just said like, get out. We, we don't want you in the military. So again, it was a huge misunderstanding. I didn't know what was going on at the time. Um, but again, thank God I had this network of friends in the right places who fought for me, um, and basically helped me stay in the IDF because I realized if, if they throw me out completely, I'm like persona non grata in the security community. I'm not going anywhere. So I got to stay in the IDF and I got to fix this. I got to figure out what just happened. So where I was supposed to go. Um, which was becoming an intelligence officer is not where I, I wound up serving. Um, I wound up serving in an operations division at Glelot Base, which is is um, right outside Tel Aviv, um, in a unit called uh, Toha Vahadracha, which is, uh, I think about that in English, uh, the, Divi the Division of, of Doctrine and Training. Um, it was a very kind of interdisciplinary, more academic level units. So um, I was actually the second youngest in this unit. So I went from being the grandmother of basic training <laughs> <laughs> to the to the baby, the baby of my unit. And um, while I was serving in this unit, I was trying to figure out what the hell just happened to my clearance. Where do I stand with the Israeli intelligence community? And, um, you know, um, it wasn't easy being in the Israeli military. It's kind of like Israeli culture times 10, like everything is magnified. It's not easy for Israelis either. Like they just come out of high school. They're their kids, yeah. right? And they're yeah. just thrown into this really intense world. Um, but I'm, I'm still so glad that I, I did it because it made me feel like, okay, now like I'm officially Israeli, like nobody can take that away from me. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm really, um, I'm glad I did the service. And it also just exposed me to Israelis from all over the country, from all different backgrounds that I, I wouldn't normally have exposure to. Yeah. You know, I, I think that's a common, I mean, I, I've heard it's come up a, a number of times, but that's one of the, I guess, the criticisms of the 
current state of the United States is that we have no common reference point anymore. Mm. There is no kind of compulsory service. So people just kind of go into their own little worlds and they forget how interconnected and interdependent we are. I think that to me is like probably my biggest critique. I, I, I wouldn't limit it to people in New York. I'd probably say everywhere. We just, we've lost sight of the fact that we're all, we're all dependent and inter and 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 connected, and that, that you can't shake that. Even if you're not like near each other, um, we we need each other, and we depend on each other. And the, does that make a difference? Do you feel like there is kind of more of that kind of common bond in Israel? I mean, obviously Israel is a lot smaller. I mean, what's the population of Israel? Oh man, um, I think it's around. Seven, eight million. Oh my okay. God, I should know this. It's such a basic thing. I was like so scared. Like I'm getting on this call with Michael. It's totally unscripted. He's going to ask me something I don't know. I think it's around eight, eight million. No, just, yeah, we're just ballpark. It's around it's just eight, size... eight million. Yeah, but okay. but it's not all Jewish. Um, about, right. I mean, we're the majority, Um, but Israel's about 20% Arab. But I'm not talking about Palestinians Um, who are not citizens or most of them are not citizens. Whole complicated situation there. Um, but the Arab Israelis, meaning the Arabs um, who have citizenship there, make about 20%. So the rest is, yeah, majority Jewish. Okay. So like, and, and from what I understand, so basically Israel has got the population of New York City and it's an area the size of about New Jersey. Is that correct? Yeah. If you were driving um, around Israel, it would probably take you like around eight hours top to bottom, maybe two hours east to west. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, that, that sounds bigger than it. Is that because of like like checkpoints and stuff or is that just a straight shot? No, it's just, it's a long, skinny country. Oh, that's okay, why. Okay. <laughs> okay. So it's uh, maybe the area of, of, of New Jersey, but longer. Okay. That, that's interesting. So, um, well, I guess when you, you've gone through both worlds, is there anything like when you came back to America, were there things that you saw about the United States that either surprise you in a bad way or maybe like in in a in a good way after all that time abroad yeah i mean i was abroad for a while i also uh, lived in eastern europe for a bit after my military service so yeah i mean i had almost no adult life in america um and i I came back to the u.s and oh my gosh when was that it's 2017 (laughs) and um yeah it was uh it was a big culture shock coming back um, obviously, there's a lot of contentious stuff going on um, with the politics here, and I found it kind of amazing that Americans, on one hand, are very conflict averse. They don't want to offend you. They don't want to speak too directly, unlike Israelis. You know, on the other hand, if politics come up and like you don't agree with their politics or you don't like the president that they like, they like people can get really angry really quick. And I was like, well, I didn't expect that because in Israel, like you know, at the dinner table. It's like people can just shout about politics. You shout, shout, shout. But like, it's not really tense, you know, and everybody's friends afterwards. And I feel like here, unfortunately, you know, you can be talking politics in a very contentious way. And then suddenly, like, you don't want anything to do with that person. Um, So I try to be aware of that. I try to be really open, you know, to to different opinions. Um, And I don't have to agree with everyone. I don't have to agree with with all my friends either. You know, So it's okay to agree to disagree. Um, but, you know, going back to what you were saying about this issue of Americans, and, and correct me if I'm just putting words in your mouth, but this kind of lack of cohesiveness. Yeah, you know, like, uh, of course, America is a much, much larger country um, than Israel. But, you know, maybe what we need to get back in touch with is our value system, right? Because Americans are diverse. We have, you know, different religions. We have different, you know, 
um, ethnicities and but something that really unites us is our value system. And I think if we lose touch with that, right? Like just as I was saying, you know, as a Jew, if you're not educating your children about where they come from and their value system, then you're gonna quickly lose it. And I think that's something that we need to articulate more strongly, you know, is what is the American value system that unites us instead of divides us? Yeah. Well, you know, the, the like I've tried to have a more, I guess, forgiving perspective on the on the on the united states because i think that it is it, by definition it's always been a place that had so much different so many different people kind of coming in so it's always dealt with this kind of issue of different viewpoints different generations like it, it, it there's so much going on more so than i think a lot of other countries as far as the kinds of people that come in um but i, I think you know, in some respects, I would say like, you know, World War Two was kind of a reckoning for the United States to kind of it was a challenge. Like, you know, you've been you've been fighting a war uh, based on all these kind of idealist, idealistic principles. But if you turn around, you realize how hypocritical it was. And I think no country is perfect. So I think every country is going to have some element of hypocrisy. But it was just kind of it was really kind of a, a reckoning to say, you know what, this is the, this this uh, the the uh the the, the, contra the contrasting uh, the contrast between what you've been saying and the way you are back in the U.S. is is intolerable and I think it's been good that the country kind of had that reckoning and started realizing it's not just like a white male Christian nation there's so much else going on but I think that to me and I say this being a white male you know able-bodied heterosexual who's you know raised Christian although I'm not practicing it anymore but like the conversation may have become have swung too far to the other side to where we've focused so much on all those differences that we've lost sight of what's what unites us um, right. as far as like those ideals. And like to me, I think the one the, the challenge for the United States is it's one of the few countries that really doesn't have ethnic roots per se. It's more really was a country founded on more of an intellectual ideal. So I think maybe I don't know. Um but like I lived in Japan for a couple of years, but like I think in general, most of the countries do have some kind of ethnic roots that kind of <laughs> unites everybody. Um, yeah. Whereas in the United States, we, by definition, we don't have that. And the idea and the United States is really just an idea. Um, and people are maybe the politics can be more contentious because it isn't about like what we have common. It's more just like, here's my idea. Here's your idea. So yeah. it's, it's an intellectual fight always but i think then to me the value of the united states has to be we need to learn how to have that debate more with more civility so right, i think and i think too many people are caught up in saying okay the united states is about these rights no it's about these rights no it's not about either it's really about process at least in my mind it's about being able to talk with other people and still kind of have your agreement have your discussion be patient, compromise, and then kind of shoulder go shoulder to shoulder and confront the challenges of the world. Now, it's never going to happen perfectly, but I think that's why I think maybe some of the political discussions can be more heated than the U.S. than maybe what you see in Israel, because it is just oh, an intellectual you think that, Oh, no, no, uh, no, no, no. You don't I think mean, the uh, politics are contentious in oh, Israel, no, no, oh, my I don't friend. Mean that, no, 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 but I mean, you said as far as like the, 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 the fact that people can have an argument and then still kind of be civil with each other, whereas I think in the United States there at least at this moment there seems to be a lot more um it, people seem to be almost like proud of saying <laughs> you know what if you don't agree with me then I don't then then you're out of my life I, I think I, that's what I meant not to say that I'm sure that <laughs> there are well you know there, there are two things well first of all just because you know 
you have a, a common Jewish story. It doesn't mean you have tons of diversity, you know, in the Jewish population and in Israel. And and yes, the politics are are very contentious there as well. But they're they're different. The things that Israelis care about are are different from what Americans tend to care about. But putting that aside, you said two things to me that kind of stuck out. One is you're talking about the rights you know, of an American, but what about the responsibilities of an American? Meaning not yeah. just what is America supposed to give to me, but what am I supposed to give back yeah. to my country, right? Yeah. Um, and the second thing is, you know, you've mentioned that you have a Christian background, but you're not a practicing Christian. And in a way, I kind of disagree with you because in America, we are living in a value system that is based on the Judeo-Christian value system, if you realize it or not. And I'm happy to tell you, like yeah, to give you like yeah. a few of those pillars, but Please. you know, the thing is, even if you say I'm agnostic, you know, I don't practice any religion, I don't belong to any ideology, I just don't think that's true because I think everybody in their lives, whether they recognize it or not, they're living by some kind of value system, whether it's, it's religious or not. Um, so what's interesting, um, uh, going back to this thing of Judeo-Christian values, uh, so um, so I, I work also. I'm, I'm kind of networked in the the local film industry in in, uh, in DC, and um, I bumped into somebody, um, this woman Caroline, who is now a good friend of mine, um, and she is a religious Christian. And in addition to her work in the film world, she also teaches Bible classes. And she was so excited when she met me because she said, you know. Um, I really had to spend a lot of time studying Jewish ethics in order to teach my Bible classes because she said, I don't think you can disconnect the Christian religion from Jewish ethics. It's like, boom. And mm. I was like, well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so we've like, you know, met for coffee. We've hung out, you know, as girlfriends, having fun, but also discussing these deeper issues of, you know, these uh, this value system. Uh, that we have in common. And of course, you know, the Christian value system isn't identical to the Jewish value system, but, um, you know, we have so many things in common um, that inform the foundation of America that so many of us take for granted today, um, myself included, because there's just so many things like amazing things about America that we were born into um, that we, we don't think about. We take it for granted. And I'm not saying that America is a perfect country. I, of course, you know, we have things in our history that we have to reckon with. Of course, there are you know, a lot of issues uh, that, that we have to deal with today. And we should always be looking to improve the country, but without throwing, you know, the baby out with the, you know, the bathwater. Yeah. Um, so when we talk about Judeo-Christian values, we're really talking originally about Jewish values, right? Because, you know, Judaism um, came first. The religion is over 3,000 years old. That's uh that means Jews have been around even longer than the Chinese, right? And then, you know, this is the first monotheistic religion and out of Judaism was born other religions like Christianity and, and Islam, right? So, you know, something, if you read about Jewish ethics, if you look at Jewish history, I, I would say there are five things that really stand out value-wise um, that were distinct in the ancient world and that we have today in America, even if we we don't really think about it, you know, necessarily aren't like particularly conscious about it. So one of them is, is like the dignity um, and the rights of the individual. And many Americans would shrug and say, well, yeah, so what, isn't that obvious? Well, it's, it's, it's not obvious because in the ancient world, and, and even today, you know, um, in, in the ancient world, we had monarchs, we had pharaohs, we had dictators, that was the norm. Um, there was absolute power in the hands of, of leadership and the Jews did not have that. <laughs> they, um, you know, first of all, it doesn't matter if you're rich or poor, you're equal, you know, before the law. That is a distinctly Jewish concept that was considered radical at the time. 
Um, so the second point, you know, just building off of that is, is this issue of balance of powers, right? So we have, you know, in America, the judiciary, the legislative, the executive, not every country has a balance of powers like that, even today. And the Jews also, they had, they never had a kingship with total power. We had a kingship, we had the priesthood, you know, we had uh, prophets, um, we had judges. Um, so we, we never believed in absolute power, like balance of powers, important stuff. Again, that's something that America has, right? Mm -hmm. um, the, third, the third thing is, is critique of power, right? Um, so you have in the Jewish world, like, and I really pity Jewish leaders. Like, I don't want to take a place of leadership among Jews because Jews, like they take their leadership to task. <laughs> mm -hmm. and, and like the most famous example is, you know, we had in ancient times, King David, uh, Nathan, the prophet, you know, criticized him for something. And instead of the king killing him, the king said, you're right. You're right. I have to change my ways, which again, if you think about that world at that time, it, it was like unheard of. And, um, the, you know, if, if you really want to appreciate how important these values are, one of my closest friends here, she lives about a half hour away in Virginia. She's from Damascus, Syria. She was a fairly well-known TV journalist at a young age, and she spoke out against the Bashar Assad regime. So did her family. Her family also had the audacity to um, have pro-West <laughs> ideology, to host parlors in their home, in the privacy of their home. Um, to discuss, you know, politics and history and ideology with with their neighbors. And guess what? They were threatened. They had to leave. <laughs> they were told, get the hell out of here. We're going to kill you, you know, wow. or stop and we'll kill you. And it's like Americans, you can uh, say, you know, on social media, I hate Trump or I hate Biden. And like, nobody's going to show up at your door, right? And and arrest you for that or throw you out of your country. My My next door neighbors are Iranian. They have their, their own story as well, standing up for their values, expressing their values and almost being killed for it. So if you want to appreciate, you know, that ability just to speak out, right, go go visit Iran and Syria. Just go spend a week over there and then you'll look at America in a very, very different light. The last two things I would say, you know, talk about the, the rights of women, you know, so it might shock you to know that it wasn't until fairly recently in the U.S., I believe the, the 1970s. Um, that it was legal for a husband to physically force sex on his wife. And Jews from the very beginning were like, a woman is not the property of a man. A woman has rights too. And it is explicitly not okay to force yourself on your wife. Okay, again, that's not just something that was like radical in ancient times, even until recently in modern times in the Western world, that is a distinct value that stands out. And then the, the last thing I would say is, you know, Judaism cares about the poor and the vulnerable, and it, it's not like a nice thing to do to give charity. It's actually an obligation to give charity. And, um, you know, you look around America today, I don't think most people think about this, but it's amazing how many nonprofits we have. And um, we, we have so many people, especially in the Washington, D.C. area, who care about a cause. They care maybe about helping the homeless um, or, you know, women from you know, abusive homes or refugees. And, you know, it's it's considered like a wonderful thing to volunteer, right? So in, in olden times, um, and actually not so olden times, if you look at the US and the UK, how they treated the homeless, I mean, the homeless were treated like criminals. They could be jailed, you know, just for begging. Um, so, you know, th these are just things that I, I look at, you know, the Jewish value system. Um, and then I look at, you know, 
um, what what America has and and how special America is. And I just you know I wish that more people would see what we have in common as opposed to what we don't have in common. And what we don't have in common, you know, we can also appreciate that too. We can learn from each other. Yeah. Well, you, the, the, the way I've been trying to think about it is more like we have more in common than we think we do. And right. to the extent there isn't things in common, there is a lot of it that is there's, that can we can learn from. There's a lot of it that's a strength. And then there are some might be some stuff that is not acceptable, but you don't have it doesn't make a difference in your life. So just got to live and live. And then maybe there are a few things that might be like might be almost deal breakers. But I, I think we the media, at least, is so consumed by the, the few things that they can get clicks on that it's kind of in i was thinking about this um for like people in the military is that you are in that like constant state of of war and you would do anything if you can for your own sanity to kind of disengage from it and i think what what it feels like media is doing is it's almost taking any conflict from anywhere in the world and whatever's going to capture the most eyeballs whatever's going to have the most powerful emotional impact is what you get bombarded with as much as possible so it's almost like even though you're a civilian and you're thousands of miles away from some conflict the tv or social media kind of puts it in your on your screen in your face so you're almost there experiencing that combat but you also have the helplessness of not being able to do anything about it um, I, I don't know, like, you know, big, big, I guess, I don't know what your thoughts are on that, but that's kind of one reason that I've drawn back from frankly watching much of the news at all. Yeah. Right. You got to take everything with a grain of salt. I mean, look, I'll, I'll just say like, I, I don't see myself being able to be friends with everyone. I mean, mm-hmm. I don't like extremism. I think extremism screws up stuff in the U S it definitely screws up stuff in the middle East. Um, so yeah, I just like if I see somebody with like a really really hateful ideology, I'll mm-hmm. I'm more likely to keep my distance from them uh, than than to engage. Um, but yeah, you were starting to ask me about this experience of of war. So mm-hmm. you're asking me like as a civilian, as an American, or or as an Israeli. Well, I guess as I mean, as somebody who's been in like been in in the military and somebody who's been been connected to like the, the <laughs> mental health world, yeah. um, how do people in the military cope with it? And then do you think that in some respects, social media is kind of almost forcing us all to feel like we're on in a, like a wartime siege or something? Social media in Israel or in the US? No, well, I guess in the anywhere, <laughs> but in the U, in the US, I guess. Right. Um, okay. Well, I mean, it's like a lot, I guess, a lot of questions in one, yes. um, you know, in the military. So <laughs> yeah. I, I wasn't really involved in any kind of mental health work when I was in the Israeli military. Okay. Like now I, I, I have a blog, right. And I interview yeah. people from all parts of the security field. And we talk about mental health. We talk about mm-hmm. psychological resilience and, and so on. So that's, yeah. you know, kind of afterwards. Um, but, you know, this question of how, how do Israelis, you know, deal with, with war, um, mm-hmm. I can't speak for for all Israelis, of course. Right, I'm just course, representing yeah. my my own views and and what what I've witnessed. Um, first of all, not everyone deals so well with it. PTSD is a huge problem in Israel, not just with the military, but with certain civilian populations, like in the south of the country, that's been almost under constant bombardment. Even if you don't hear about it in the American news, um, from from Hamas, from missiles in um, coming from the Gaza Strip. Um, so. PTSD, I mean, again, like that is a, a tragic byproduct of having to deal like nonstop with, with wars, right? Um, but I think, you know, a lot of Israelis 
at the very least, they are growing up with war and this expectation of, you know, two things. One is that we we all know, or most of us know, that we're going to serve in the military if we like it or not. Um, you know, that's just something. This is part of our our life. Um, and the second thing is, um, is that I, I think we're educated very much in Israel, like life still has to go on. You know, there's going to probably be a war every few years. It's probably going to be like this for a while, but like this can't be our, our obsession. Um, we have to live our lives. And something that was very interesting to me when I was in Israeli basic training, in addition to, you know, rolling around the mud, doing Krav Maga, shooting your M16 in the desert, we, we have classroom instruction. And so something, you know, this was probably within the first few weeks I was there, you know, these commanders were like, listen, we don't want you to hate Palestinians. We don't want you to hate the other side. This is a very complicated war. I mean, this is like, you know, on our doorstep and, you know, we're not at war with every Palestinian civilian. In fact, you know, there are Palestinians that we have relations with. There are Palestinians who come in, you know, to Israel and they work alongside us. Um, so, you know, without going into all the politics and the complicated history of that, I would say that, you know, the education I was receiving and basic training in the Israeli military was the opposite of brainwashing, the opposite of trying to continue this hatred, saying the comp they said, look, we acknowledge this is a complicated situation. We have to protect ourselves. Okay, but we can't, you know, hate the other side and we have to do our best to differentiate between the terrorist organizations and the civilians. And that can be a very hard thing to do in warfare scenarios. But, you know, really just striving um, not to live in a place of hatred, not to live in a place where war is our life. We still have to live our lives in spite of there being war. I hope that answered your question. Yeah, no, no, it did. So, so you mentioned you're working on a memoir a few times. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah. So um, it's currently unpublished. I, I recently mm -hmm. completed it, and I'm now in discussions with literary agencies. <laughs> and mm -hmm. the reason I have the blog is connected to the memoir because I was told, hey, you know, as a writer, you can't just you know throw your book out there and expect somebody to take it. You got to actually have a platform. You you have to have followers. You have to have people that are going to be interested in the content. So uh, you know that's been a lot of uh, lessons learned along the way. Um, so yeah, so my memoir, I think we we touched upon it a bit, um, you know, in our our uh, our talk today. So yeah, so my my story is you know about this this young American woman who will do whatever it takes to get into the upper echelons of the Israeli intelligence community. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I'm I immigrated to Israel as a teenager, as I mentioned, in the middle of a war. Um, I met you know a fellow immigrant. Roman, um, who kind of brought me into his world, who, who looked out for me. And um, I started to become interested in that world, um, in the national security situation that was going on around me. And, um, you know, I um, found out along the way that, you know, my friend was, was trying to get into the Mossad. It was something that was not on my radar at the time, meaning I wasn't interested in the Mossad. <laughs> His friends were like, you should try out for that agency. I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm going to be an English literature professor, but okay. Um, and uh, yeah, so basically, you know, his suicide, along with my own mental health situation, um, along with just kind of honestly feeling like an outsider, um, you know, feeling like as an immigrant that I'm not quite part of Israel, even though, and I'm not putting down the country in any way, but it's like, I'm, I'm not 100% Israeli, you know? Um, I also was just, you know, a woman um, operating in a very macho profession, right? So that had an effect on me. And then I'm also, 
you know, and again, this is getting, sorry if I, I um, fast forwarded a bit, but you know, th this is the situation that I was dealing with psychologically in the security field is that also just as somebody with a mental health issue in a profession where you, you basically have to be perfect. <laughs> you have to perform like with constant excellence. And that was really hard on me. Um, and again, I'm not asking for like any sympathy. Like I chose this path, right? Um, but basically I'm this like character, I guess I can call myself a character yeah. <laughs> um, who, you know, you know, from the first pages of the book, what her goal is, or at least the external goal, because she tells you on the first page is like, I want to get into the most odd, <laughs> mm -hmm. right? You're like, okay, that's a tall order kid. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but what starts to unfold during the story is not only how is she doing it, which is again, still surface level and, and, you know, definitely a fun adventure, but internally, why is she doing it? And that's what, you know, gets unpacked throughout the story. And um, the, the theme that I was very interested in exploring, I was thinking, I, I'm, I'm very well read in memoir. I love um, reading memoirs. I actually ghost authored a memoir um, for somebody in the government back in Israel. So I'm very interested in this genre. I just want to say quickly a difference between memoir and autobiography, because people have definitely confused the two. So autobiography is not really literary. It's more like historical, it's chronological, it's very straightforward. Memoir kind of straddles the world of fiction and nonfiction, um, meaning if you were to pick up my memoir and start reading it, you would not necessarily know if it was fiction or nonfiction because of the way it's written. It's literary. And I'm not telling you everything exactly in chronological order. I have flashbacks to situations with my my friend Roman and, you know, his crowd. Um, if I have a little flashback, you know, to childhood stuff and how that informed also my you know, desire to be part of the Jewish community in this this deeper way, right? Mm. But I'm also looking at these <clears throat> common themes in memoir and then trying to do like a little twist on them. So a common theme in memoir, for example, is like identity, like who am I and coming to terms with who I am. So mm. I said, you know what, I want to write a memoir that explores coming to terms with who I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> because throughout this story, I'm like playing these roles. I'm like, I want the Israeli security community to see me as the perfect candidate. And I'm willing to go through a lot of pain and hardship to to create, you know, that perception for the community. But it's like at a certain point, it's like, who the hell are you? Is that you? You know, and if that's not you, it's like, is that how you want to live? And again, I'm not criticizing the Israeli security community. I think there are a lot of aspects of my story that could be relevant to any security community. Um, but basically what I learn along the way in this story is that I'm not the only one hiding <laughs> a <laughs> mental health issue you know, from, from the security community. Um, so yeah, and when I came out very recently, you know, with my story, which is not easy for me, I'm a very private person, even me talking to you right now on this podcast, like it's not easy for me, you know? Well, thank you. <laughs> um, but I just said, look, you know, yeah. if I'm, I'm either in or out, you know, I'm either gonna just put, shelve the memoir and forget about it, or I'm in, if I'm in, I'm in 100% and I'm gonna have to talk about the story or start sharing little pieces of it. Um, yeah, so. And it's been kind of an amazing um, reaction, just finding, getting all these private messages from people in the security community who are like, yeah, I'm dealing with that too. And maybe people who aren't even dealing with a specific mental health issue, but it's dealing with psychological issues of, of loneliness, of, you know, not feeling good enough, of like constantly competing with other like really smart people. <laughs> so you might feel really smart and special like in the classroom, but then you're suddenly thrown into this very high level military intelligence unit where everybody's really smart. Everybody was the top of their class. And then you just kind of feel small in between. So, you know, I just felt like this is a story that's not just relevant for 
um, other security professionals and timely because there are a lot of mental health issues going on um, in the U.S. security community. Um, but it's also like a story that I really wanted to speak to Generation Z, right? I wanted to speak to the younger generation, which is the age that I am in, in the memoir, mm-hmm. which is like, you know, part of finding your identity, carving out your own path in life is not just defining who you are, but also having to be real about what you're not. Um, And also, you know, the importance of an individual's place in community. And I think community, like I've told you from the beginning, is really important to me. But it's like, if you are not happy first as an individual, if you're not well-defined as an individual, you're going to have a really hard time finding a satisfying place in a community. So that has to come first. Um, So those are just some of the universal themes that I, you know, wanted to explore. and uh, I'm, I'm fully confident that my work's going to be published one day. It's just going to take time to unravel the traditional publishing industry and, you know, to um, follow through with certain standards that um, literary agents are asking from me with word count <laughs> to yeah. edit it down a bit. Um, but I'm very committed to it. So, yeah, I don't know what's more complicated, dealing with the American traditional publishing industry or, or trying uh, to get into Israeli intelligence. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know. a second memoir about this. About getting it's going to be a meta memoir. Yeah. Oh my God, that would be so funny. My husband was just joking about that. And he's like, yeah, it would be like a meta memoir, my memoir about I'm a memoir. Just trying to get published. Um, yeah. No, yeah. No, I, yeah. When, I, when, I, when I was in the Navy, like one of the, I was in the surface warfare. So I was an officer assigned to a ship. And, you know, one oh, of cool, the, cool. the phrases that, uh, that came up about that particular community was that like, they kind of eat their young. Um, which, which was to me, like, kind of, I mean, it was more like, it was kind of like sink or swim. And I don't know if that's a kind of a structural thing uh, or if it's just kind of like the, the setting, but you know, it's a very, it's very hard. And I mean, immensely hard. I mean, it's really, life is hard for anybody, but I think like when you're in that particular setting where I think bureaucratically, they have to just trust people who are very young with a lot of responsibility. Um, and you're in like, you know, the stakes are, can be so high, even if it's not like a wartime scenario, if it's just like, you know, people's safety and equipment. Um, there's a lot of responsibility put on young people. And as I was getting ready for our talk, I was thinking about the fact that, you know, you'd think that there would be some kind of like a, like a unit psychologist or psychiatrist that you'd think that should be like kind of standard for any kind of combat unit would be to have somebody that people could talk to. And I know in the Navy, there was like a chaplain for the, mm-hmm. for the ship. And and maybe that was what the maybe the in the old times there was, but maybe there needs to be somebody who really is like not just a doctor for physical maladies, but like an assigned psychiatrist or a psychologist for units because there's so much going on. Yeah, I mean, I explore a little bit about that on on the blog as well. I was, you know, speaking to somebody recently at a think tank, and that's you know a complicated issue too. It has it comes down to to resources and dealing with bureaucracy. But yeah, I mean, if you don't, if, if your, your soldiers, right, are the most important product you have, you have to take care of them or, you know, they can't do their job right. By the way, how old were you when you went to the Navy? I was I graduated from college. So it was from I was active duty assigned to a ship from the ages of like 23 to 26. So what made you want to do that? Uh, well, I mean, the, the Navy was, was uh, good enough to pay for college for me. So I was, um, I, I, I owed four years and I, I 
took an assignment to Japan. Um, cool. So, I mean, it was, you know, great and, you know, lots of, I think, adventures, lots of responsibility, but but very, very hard. And I think you, in some respects, you're kind of plucked from whatever community you're in and you feel very kind of alone. On the other hand, I think what I feel in retrospect is that all those guys, and it was just men on the ship that I served with were, I mean, that's I, where my ship's being decommissioned. And I definitely want to go to that decommissioning just to see those people because the guys that I've reconnected with after 30 plus years, you still feel like you could pick up those conversations that you had back then because you've you've seen them in the, you know, in the in the most some of the most challenging times. Right. So it's almost like you created a new community out of your unit in the Navy. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, and I think that's what I, I think what I find when you talk about like interdependence and interconnectedness is that I think that the modern upbringing for a lot of children is more just like, you know, go to college and you do this and you do this. And it's all about like what you're saying, like more about me, me, me and what I want to do. And there's really no, there's nothing kind of enforcing that idea of like, you are part of something, even if you don't appreciate it, you're dependent on everybody, you're dependent on the truck drivers who bring the food from the farms to the city you're dependent on like really everybody you know the construction workers and 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 everything and I, I think that would be one message that i wish people would understand is that maybe part of the idea of like uh i mean i guess accepting people's differences understanding that you you need that person as much as you don't think you do you do and I think maybe that's what the, the the military service can drive home for people who get to serve is you realize, you know, firsthand, you see how dependent you are for, on the most junior person or the most random wow. person from the most random background. Right. I think that's really insightful. So I, and I, and I, and frankly, I've, I lost sight of that for, for a long time, but I think now that I've gotten, you know, in the last few years, I realized, I think that's what's, what's missing in the United States is, is that idea of, you know, and I think you talk about like sacrifice. I think that's one of the, one of my critiques of, I think how politics works is more like, I want this to happen. So make them do this. And I don't want to have any sacrifice myself. People want things done, but they're not vested in how it gets done. They just want it done. And I think to me, we need to embrace more the idea of the self-sacrifice. Like, what are you willing to give up to make your objective happen? And where do you acknowledge some responsibility? Because if we're all interconnected, that means nobody is 100% culpable. We're all part of this. So so even like with extremism, I think that to the extent there are people that are really extreme in their beliefs, they're they're partly reflecting the society that we've all contributed to in our own little way. Not to say that you have to deal with them, but we have to acknowledge that they're a result of our society and a society that we've contributed to or not. And we have to figure out how to fix it or deal with it. I mean, the thing with extremism, there's also certain perceptions involved. I don't think most Americans are extremists. The problem is, and even in the Middle East, I don't think most of those civilians are extremists. It's just that the extremists are really loud, yes. you know, and when you have on social media, like people hotly debating something and in politics, it's usually the moderates who are a little more quiet and like, all right, I'm not going to get involved in this, you know? And so as a result, what they think is, wow, everybody's really extreme when the the reality is that the extremists are just a lot louder than, you know, the people who are more moderate and don't necessarily want to get dragged in to a contentious debate like that you know you're right Um, but yeah i mean i love i love that we're like on the same page with this idea of you know not just demanding rights but also 
um, giving back of, of providing, you know, a structure for responsibilities. And so it kind of, you know, makes me wonder what would America look like if we did have a mandatory um, military service or, you know, not even mandatory service, but a mandatory volunteer year. And it has to be done in a state that isn't where you grew up. Yeah, exactly. Right? Wouldn't that be interesting to see like as an experiment, like, you know, what would America look like as, as a result? Yeah, I, I think, I mean, so to me, like, the uh, there are those old time movies of like the guys in the trenches or something in like World War Two, World War One, where it's like there, there's a guy from New York and then there's the guy from wherever you get all that different, that mix of different people. And in some respects, you get defined by being that New Yorker, but in other respect, you're being defined by the situation you're in now. And I think that's. I agree. I think that, again, like people want certain things, like even during the pandemic, there was a lot of people saying, uh, we need aid, we need help, we need relief, I need something. But there's nobody saying like, hey, we need, um, looks like we need volunteers for something. Let, how can I help? Mm-hmm. Very few people were doing that, and myself included. I, I, I didn't. I know somebody who did. But like, you know, most people were just trying to get by. And I think that that's, that's, what, that's what's missing. So... Um, <laughs> But but um, we should probably wrap up. But um, but I guess but and I wish we could go on because I, I have like a whole n- list of like things that <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to cover. Um, but uh, including the three thousand year history of. Uh, <laughs> of oh no of, no! But you can't Judaism. ask me about about the three thousand year history because I'm like oh no like I'm like if I miss something and then like my former teachers here that I miss like how come you don't know that I taught that to you in eighth grade you know I'm gonna be mortified. Okay. <laughs> but this, no, this was great. I, I really. <laughs> appreciate it michael you know thank, no, thank you, you. Uh, for having me on your show and this was great i just uh i appreciate being able to tell you my story and um getting a little bit of your story in return yeah no thank you so and before i wrap up can i ask what like what what gives you hope at the end of the day mm, story you know i think when people share their stories i think that is the best way you know to put yourself in someone else's shoes to get that to know them better, you know, and to feel more unified with the society around you. Yeah, that's great. It's they're simple. And, and I think so true. I think that to me, when you listen to somebody's story, you're giving them respect. And I think that's like one of the core things that human beings want is just like, respect me, respect me enough to understand how I perceive myself. Absolutely. So great. All right. Well, thank you again, Jessica. Um, Really great talking with you. And uh, thank you to all the listeners and viewers out there. May you go out and explore our country with curiosity, respect, compassion, and humility. All right. Thanks so much. (laughs) Bye, Michael. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thank you.